0: Couch Wisdom Uh, Couch Wisdom uh, Hey there, this is Christine Kakari from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. If Robert Henker never made a single record, he would still be one of the most significant figures in electronic music. Along with co-founder and one-time collaborator Gerhard Bielers, Henker developed the earliest version of Ableton Live, the digital audio workstation and audio sequencer that allows musicians to store and trigger samples during shows. Of course, Henker also made several innovative electronic albums. On the Gravity LP, for instance, which he recorded under the name Monolake, he mined the intersection between abstract computer music and dance-derived techno. There are also albums that he released under his own name, including Floating Points, on which he uses digital noise to reconstruct the ambient sounds of our natural world. A consummate thinker who exists outside of all mainstream conversations, Henke has spent the last several years experimenting with lasers to craft mesmerising audiovisual installations. This episode of Couch Wisdom is taken from a wide-ranging lecture at the 2018 Red Bull Music Academy. On this episode, you'll hear the part of the lecture discussing the beginnings of Ableton Live, the at times improbable story of how it came to be, some of its more creative uses, and much more. But we begin by hearing a bit more about what Berlin was like when Henke first moved here in the early 1990s, which sets the scene for the software's creation. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom. It'd be great to hear from you what Berlin was actually like at that time, if it was as um, wild and kind of limitless as it seems to be.
1: Well, I mean, this could of course be the beginning of a talk for the next few months. Uh, So for me personally, Berlin put two things together, which turned out to be equally important. The one thing was that I started uh, to study computer science and uh, I was also connected to the electronic studio of the Technical University, which was a place of very academic computer music research into sound generation, uh, exposure to serious composers of electronic and electroacoustic music. Uh, which was, again, something which I had no clue about before. So I heard Xenakis, I heard François Bayle, Parmigiani, Stockhausen, all these people I had no idea about. And at the same time, Berlin, to me, was going to Tresor and being profoundly shocked the first night because it was just so much more than I could handle. And I left after half an hour and I thought I will never come back. And guess what? The next day I was back. Um, So these two very, very different forces, the the refinement and the code, and waiting one night to calculate five seconds of sound versus insanely loud bass drum, hi-hat snare, and uh, lots of fog and strobe, and half-naked people dancing. Uh, This was something which basically shaped my whole experience. And the, the situation in Berlin, which, made all this possible was to condense this in a really brief uh, history. In East Germany, there was no private property, so everything was state-owned. A lot of buildings in East Berlin, including a lot of small factories and manufacturing spaces, were state-owned. So the GDR disappeared, the system vanished, and there was still no owner. And the previous owners were either um, people who had to leave Germany to flee from the Nazi regime, or they were killed. So, um, there were basically buildings where the ownership was not clear. And that meant that it was possible for artists to more or less just go in there. Um, And the city government at some point made a very important decision to say, okay, we have the choice, either these buildings are vandalized and empty, or these people are rent out for nothing, basically, to artists. Um, We don't know exactly what they're doing in there, but at least they keep the windows shut uh, and the heating intact. So um, It was possible to find the most amazing industrial spaces, which are similar to what you have here, um, on a smaller scale, but very similar in terms of interior, in terms of architecture, in terms of accessibility, um, right in the center of the city and do something. All you had to do is go to the city government and say, "Um, I'm an art student, I want to make an art project in there. And opening a bar meant putting a few boxes of beer, a small PA and a turntable in it, and that's it. And since electronic music culture was not established as a commercial culture, no one even thought of what's with the money they earn there. You know, no one cared. And that meant um, zero investment. And that meant it was possible to do all kinds of strange experiments. Uh, It didn't matter if two people showed up for a concert, because there were no costs involved. So you just met with your friends and you played some music, and some more friends came by and then some more friends. And um, at some point decided, okay, maybe we need a door, and we need to um, have a better coffee machine. Um, And next time we bring more beer. But that was it. And this uh, situation allowed for two things. It allowed for musical experiments and it also allowed for uh, a social experiment, like how can you interact with people, what kind of, what is a club as a social experience, uh, but also very important, an audiovisual experience and a spatial experience. If you come in an empty space, you have to make a decision where do I put my loudspeakers? Where do I put the bar? Where is the DJ or the live performer? Um, Where is the audience? And that's led to all these nice situations of the DJ playing right in the middle of the audience, doing quadraphonic sound, just to try it out, having bass bins uh, two stories below, and enjoy the fact that the bass is rumbling through the whole building before it reaches the dance floor. All kinds of crazy shit you could just do. And um, this vibe made it possible to be very naïve, in a very good sense. It didn't matter what you tried out musically, as long as someone liked it. You could try the most bizarre things, and if you listen to early techno, it's so obvious that people just threw together whatever they had in mind. Um, it was much more uh, eclectic than what came out ten years later, when everything became more formalized and there was already a, a recipe. There was no recipe at the beginning. If you, if you listen to um, early KLF, or if you listen to uh, many, many other records of that time, you know. Someone started with a shouting sample in a track, someone else copied it and added something else, including, of course, horrible scenarios where um, there was this kind of commercial thing with barking dog voices pitched up and down, but everything was possible. And I don't know where we started, but that's how it was.
0: I'm curious, do you believe that um, now that things have changed in terms of the city, perhaps in terms of the commercialisation of certain types of formerly underground types of music, do you believe it is at all possible for young people coming up now to be able to replicate those conditions somehow of being boundless and being unrestricted, um, or do you believe that that's been lost?
1: Well, this is a difficult question to ask someone who is approaching 50, because um, I, I feel I'm, I'm not an expert in talking about what 20-year-old people should do, or uh, what they even are doing, because I know too little. But I believe there is, there's always a way to to find uh, creative niches, because there always was, and there is in every society and in every culture, even in the most oppressive ones, there's always ways around the official doctrine. and. I experienced two things. As far as the electronic dance music culture is concerned, obviously this type of music and this type of expression is still of interest to people in their early 20s. Because when I perform, I see people in this age who are interested and who are performing right after or before me, and I don't feel that I don't belong there, or that there's a huge cultural or age gap, which is super nice. Um, But of course, there's also a lot of different ways to express yourself these days. So, in a way, the the Internet made it possible to collaborate and exchange yourself with people all over the globe. So, instead of having regional boundaries... So, back in the 90s, you had regional pockets. So, the Berlin scene, and the Cologne scene, and the Detroit scene. They were all centered around regional space with all these people in here, and everyone here shares the same idea. And there's another regional space somewhere else which shares a different idea which might be connected or not. And now you have this global um, onion ring scenario where all over the world you have people are interested in the same electronic music and there are only a few people but they're connected to a few others all around the globe. So, And we're orbiting around this globe. And this, sometimes this is even uh, actually strange that you go somewhere to a completely different cultural background. And you go to a party and you listen to exactly the same tracks you listen to in Berlin. Um, And sometimes I almost wish that I go, just making something up, I go to Namibia and experience a completely different type of electronic music um, at the places where I have access to. I, I say the last sentence because who knows, perhaps there is something going on which is just not in my onion ring and therefore um, it's happening right below or above me and I have no clue. As far as, as I know, there is a lot of interesting things going on and um, it's probably wrong to look at exactly a specific type of electronic dance music for innovation. Because if the music ends up in a shoe store for selling uh, expensive shoes, you know that it can't be underground anymore in the same way it was 25 years ago. But I assume there's different scenes, there's different things going on which might just emerge right now and which might not even be connected to purely listening to music. I'm uh, only very vaguely familiar with, for instance, what's going on in, in game engine development and what people do with game engines these days. Who knows what comes up with as great art forms using game engines in a few years where people do the most amazing virtual reality experiences that, of course, include electronic music. So, who knows what's happening?
0: I mean, you seem to be somebody who is always... um, there's always a sense of like forward momentum in what you're doing, um, going from studying computer music, making music, using hardware instruments, creating software to be able to revolutionise the way that you perform with those instruments, and so on and so forth. Kind of the future of gaming and VR. I mean, is that something that you could see yourself developing an interest in, in the future? Because you you always seem to be kind of like a step ahead of where you are.
1: Um, In my own personal uh, view of myself, I'm not a step ahead. I'm actually a very conservative person uh, in my usage of technology, for instance. And uh, so I I need to separate a little bit what I attempt to contribute with uh, my colleagues at Ableton, where, of course, the the question always is, how does the world musically look like in five years or ten? Because we have to find answers to that. And we're working on this, of course. And this is one part. And the other part is my artistic life. And in my artistic life, I reached a stage where I'd rather like to refine and explore all these loose threads that accumulated over the last 30 years of my life, rather than throwing myself into something new. So I feel that I need to spend more time in the studio working on just electronic music, because I have so many ideas that I'd like to explore, that are informed by the things I'm doing currently, but for those ideas, I don't need new instruments, I don't need new software, I don't need new hardware. I just need time. And the same goes for my installation works. I'm not working with the latest technology, uh, and I never did in a way. I'd rather like to refine the, all these ideas which I have in my mind. So, I don't think that necessarily, if I would try to, to learn to let's say, uh, programming Unity, or what, whatever is the envoke game engine these days, uh, would solve any artistic question. It it would rather take all my time to learn the platform. And um, the same comes is true for buying new equipment. Of course, I'm tempted to buy equipment because I like machines. I find synthesizers and reverb units and all these kind of things really sexy. There's some things that are insanely beautiful, they're engineering highlights and I love them, but let's say if I buy another digital synthesizer from the early 80s, it wouldn't solve any artistic question at all. It wouldn't make my compositions just one notch better, nothing. Because I have more sounds uh, in my library than I can ever use for the next 500 years. So the last thing I should spend my time with is looking on eBay if someone sells insert grade synthesizer here, um, because it's pointless. I still do sometimes and afterwards I think, okay, now I spent an insane amount of money for this vintage reverb, but to be honest, this plugin which I recently got for free from this uh, friend of mine is actually better. So I I think I should not focus on new technologies, I should focus on new ways of expressing myself within my framework.
0: I think that's something we're going to come back to in a moment, but um, you mentioned Ableton, so I feel like this is probably a good time to introduce the background and your involvement in the development of Ableton Live. If we could look at photo number seven, please. Another one from the vault. Uh, Oh, this is. (laughs) Can you describe what's happening here?
1: Well, this is me. I can clearly see that. It looks similar. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And this other guy here is Mr. Gerhard Bieles. Um, I have been telling this story for so often that I won't repeat it. I didn't like this guy at all when I met him in Munich. Um, I went to Berlin to start a new life and guess who was in my first lecture at the uh, university? This guy. We became best friends. We started making music together, like here, and this guy at some point decided after finishing studying that the own software company for music software would be the thing to do. He found Ableton, he knocked on the door and said, Robert, we need you. I joined and, well, the rest you know. So, what you see here is Mr. Gerhard Billis and myself playing a very conceptual concert. Um, The synthesizer here, the Yamaha SY-77, is a very complex machine which uh, you can program in such a way that if you press down a few keys, There's a lot of looping envelopes going on inside that create some very complex, long, droney sounds that changes over time. And our conceptual idea was that we both start with the same sound, we press down the same keys, use matches to keep them pressed down, and then we together start editing the sound. Everyone just in any way we wanted, so we get these different types of droney structures going on that go further and further apart, or met again, and after half an hour, or whenever we felt like it's enough, we went through all the parameters and made them the same again, so that we ended at the same sound again. So after half an hour of playing, I said, Operator 1, release rate 15. Gerhard, clack, 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 clack. Um, Operator 2, attack rate 12. And I, clack, 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 clack. So, until we were back to the same sound again, and then we finished. Um, so this was called the symmetrical concert and we played it as i said on the website uh in front of audience as big as 5 people and um well maybe this was 10 here and yeah so much t- to this poster photo and i guess the question was more about Ableton right
0: yeah but we can uh we we can Go there in stages. Um, I'm going to bring up another photo, which is number 17, please.
1: Ah, yeah, oh, well, you 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 did your homework.
0: <laughs> I deep dived into your website. Um, is this the, online? Yeah, it is. It is. Ah. Oh, actually, that wasn't on your website. I found it somewhere else. <laughs> um, but this is uh, the PX18 sequencer. Um, I'd love it if you could uh, explain what is happening on this screen and how you develop this together with Gerhard.
1: Okay, so this is a Max patch which Gerhard and me used for creating music, both on stage and in the studio. And let's walk a little bit. (laughs) So, uh, obviously this is here is one bar of music and velocities. And this looked better when it was opened in Max 4. In Max 4, this whole thing didn't look so strange. this photo was taken using it, the same Max patch in a later Max version, which has a different graphics, so it's a bit fucked up. So this is one, let's say, let's call it clip, um, which has uh, velocities and pitch and durations and all kinds of things. This is 15 tracks or 16, not 12 actually, and each track could play a different clip, quantized and there's an overall Groove uh, Editor, and there is some crazy shit which actually is not part of life, unfortunately, which allows to scramble the time. And there is something that allows to switch the patterns of each of these tracks in a timeline. So let's call this the Arranger. So that's a very basic step sequencer, which we used to well perform with. And it ran on a laptop, and it had MIDI out, and the MIDI went to um, synthesizer racks and stuff like that. Some of those ideas, uh, in particular the idea that every single pattern can be switched at any time, and that they can all switch together, um, found its way into life. And so, parts of the inspiration for life came from, from trying out these things before.
0: And also at this time that you were developing um, this step sequencer, you and Gerhard were also creating and performing music as well. Yes. As, uh, as Monoleg. That's true. That is true. Um, so I think that this is a good point to perhaps listen to something from that era. I believe it's between like mid-90s to very early 2000s, where uh, this PX-18 step sequencer was really integral. Um, in the performance of your music. So let's have a listen to, I believe it was your first EP, Cyan. Oh, sweet. Yeah. So let's have a listen to Cyan one, and um, then we can resume.
1: So I, I think I have probably been listening to this track not for 15 years. So okay. let's let's see if it stands up. But actually this track is is older than, than this here.
0: Hey there. This is the point in the lecture where we played some music and we're not able to include it here but just keep listening, it'll make sense. So just to remind everyone what that was, that was uh, Cyan by Mono Lake from their first EP in 1997, I believe. So
1: there's a few comments to make on that track. The first one is, it is very obvious if you listen to this um, all these years later, that at this time there was a different idea of time in the type of music which was made in Berlin. Uh, This idea of an endless state, was very predominant, and uh, because the first impulse when I listen to this now is, God, this is so slow. Um, but after listening to a, for it to it for a while, I get back in the mental state which was happening during this time, and the fact that things changed so slow was actually welcome because it was a very definite statement against a three-minute pop track. So to wait till the change happens in your brain, before it happens in the music. And uh, of course, uh, if you listen to this whilst you're being stoned, it's a different experience anyway. <laughs> and that played a role at this time, <laughs> undeniably. Uh, this track is also a great showcase of uh, Gerhard performing the arpeggiator of the Juno 6. And um, the, this weird bass line is actually a mosquito. Um, I made a recording of uh, some flies um, for something, and I just had this this floppy with the mosquito in my sampler, and we just transposed it down, and suddenly this showed up, and the bass line was there. Uh, this is the kind of experimentation which came very natural at this time. The byproduct was that there was all these annoying other birds in the background, which to me, from a two thousand and eighteen sound perspective, are way too much in the foreground, but this was the trade off either having this mosquito baseline plus the uh, birds in the background or having not the mosquito baseline and the decision was clear let 's just accept the birds yeah, so much about this track and um, the the funny thing is that this track led to uh, our first release uh, on, on chain reaction simply because. We were never intending to release this, we just played it to friends, because we made tracks for ourselves, for fun and for showing our friends. And one of our friends said, Hey, um, did you play this to Mark and Moritz? No, should we? Yeah, 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 yeah. you should. And then uh, I did, and I I gave that, that tape to Mark, and I was expecting him to listen to it immediately, And it was kind of, okay. And Mark just put it in his bag, and then nothing happened, and I forgot about it. And a few weeks later, Mark just um, called me on my landline because that was what we had this time and said, "Uh, what's the name of your project? And I said, huh, sorry, what? Yeah, um, the dot you gave me. Um, What's the name of the project? And I were conferencing with Gerhard, and we have been on a kind of holiday trip together through the U.S. And we went from San Francisco to Las Vegas and we passed a sign to a lake, but we didn't have time to see the lake. And this was a lake called Mono Lake. And we thought, oh, it's not interesting. And we just moved on. And then I went to a gas station and I saw a postcard of Mono Lake and I bought the postcard and went to Gerd and said, shit, look what we missed. And so when Mark asked us what the name of the project is, I look at Gerhard and Gerhard looks at me and we say, Mono Lake. <laughs> and <laughs> so the, the kind of lake we never saw. So that's how uh, that happened.
0: It's definitely worth clarifying who Mark and Moritz are. Mark Ernestus okay, and yeah. Moritz von Oswald.
1: Okay. Sorry, yeah. So small scene at this time. Everyone knew everyone. Uh, yeah, and Mark Ernestus and Moritz von Oswald um, founded the basic channel label and chain reaction, which was the offspring label which became the, uh, the home of many uh, of our friends and in us. And this is how things happened. And this just shows how, how small everything was. Uh, it was very not driven by uh, big money, not driven by the idea of selling lots of copies, uh, and not much marketing effort, actually no marketing at all, just the fact that it was existing and word of mouth was enough to this
0: Um, I'm also curious to know like at this time kind of late 90s uh, Berlin when Basic Channel, um, Chain Reaction, putting out these seminal releases um, what what was your experience of performing around the city? What kind of spaces were you moving within? Because I feel like uh, later on in your career the idea of um, factoring in spaces becomes like one of the, the big tent poles of your um, approach to your work so i 'm curious to know what kind of spaces you were moving in at that time
1: that 's a good question um, at, at this time, uh, when performing spaces were not my main concern, I was way too occupied with the fact that suddenly i or we at the beginning have to perform somewhere, so we just when everyone, someone asked us we, we went there and it was just the usual setup, some dudes on stage in a club um, there were some exceptions where we played uh different scenarios with multiple speakers and things like this, but this was it was not my main focus at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh my my interest in in performing multi channel uh and finding a different perspective came later when no, came later, period. Um yeah.
0: Okay. Um well let's talk a little bit uh, further about the development of Ableton Live. Um, We've got another image which...
1: I'm so curious what comes now (laughs) because I have a few (laughs) suspicions of which kind of images.
0: Um, So we're gonna look at number... let's look at number eight please.
1: Ah. Yes. This was actually functional. It doesn't look like this but it worked. Um, So this is how a very very early pre-version one release version of life looked like, uh, and the funny thing is, if you look at this now, uh, you notice that the, the the basic concept still looks very familiar, and I find this kind of cute. With a version that only looked slightly better than this one, we went to the first uh, NEM show, which is the most important trade show for electronic music instruments, and showed this software, and. Uh, yeah, I could talk a lot about this trade show and the reactions of the people to to what they saw there. I don't know how much time we have.
0: I think I think it'd be great to share it because now obviously Nam is a it's a hugely um, important kind of location and event for kind of acoustic but also electronic instruments. Like, what was it like taking this kind of new technology? and presenting it to that kind of Just a question,
1: audience. do you also intend to show this fantastic photo of Gerhard and me after the trade show?
0: No, I didn't know it existed.
1: Ah, too bad. Because um, okay. there's a really hilarious photo of us, uh, but if you don't have it, okay, even better. Um, so, we, we went to Namshow, show, and if you have not much money, then you are having a really small booth like the size of of that space here, pretty much the screen here in a smaller version and a little thing to put a laptop on and show this, and two loudspeakers. Not many people showed up at our place because we were at the very end, and next to us were some company who sold some uh, really bad notation software and some strange company selling something else strange, which I forgot. And we showed this strange software which looked very different from anything people people knew at this time. This was the time when Reason just came out with these dangling cables and photorealistic renderings and three-dimensional stuff. And this was the opposite. And what happened was that people from other companies came by and said, sorry, what? This is a software you want to use on a laptop on stage? You guys are nuts. Um, Laptop on stage. (laughs) Um, And they left. And then other company guys came and said, ooh, this interface looks horrible. Um, Can't you hire a graphics designer? Um, And they left. Well, um, we were confident enough to survive that because at at some point, well, first of all, we knew that laptops on stage work because we have been doing this. You have to imagine, just to give a context of the time, the, the typical advertisement for music software at this time looked like this. You have a full color photo page on, in keyboards magazine, with a photo of one of those studio mixing desks, which goes basically from this end of the room to that end, um, and so you see this photo and leather and all very nice. And I'm not making this up; I have this photo right in my memory. And the Porsche car key on the on the desk. Um, this was the advertisement for Logic at this time. So um, the the image they wanted to convey for their softwares. This is professional software for the successful professional producer, and the professional producer is a Porsche driver with a big console and a big studio. So that something that is on a laptop on stage for tech- techno nerds uh, doesn't fit in this image is obvious. Um, and this was our great chance, because these customers were not recognized, this concept of performing was not recognized, this idea of actually making music as performance was not recognized. So we were the freaks and in our niche we were happy. Um, When we started Ableton, we kind of knew that we will sell enough copies that a small company can survive, because we knew that our friends would be interested and that there's friends of friends of friends out there who share similar ideas. So we, we kind of knew that something like this fulfills a desire of people who tried to make electronic music and who couldn't do the same way before. So we we took that for granted. But what we didn't anticipate was that the market could be much larger. And what happened, and I think it happened on the second day of the first NEM show, was some guy came by, um, a little bit older than us, uh, and the usual LA-style black uh, suit and everything in black, and glasses, perhaps, or not, I can't remember that. Uh, And he was followed by maybe five, six uh, significantly younger people also looking like the classical LA composers, also black, you know, like imagine um, Nine Inch Nails all over the place, and and this guy said, So, what is this, what you have here? And I say, yeah, well, this is a software performing on stage and I can put in a loop here and I can change the tempo without changing the pitch and I can add a second loop and it runs in sync. And he interrupts me and says, so you can change the tempo without changing the pitch. So you can do this without steps in between. So I can maybe ramp up the tempo from, let's say, 110 BPM to 200 BPM continuously over two minutes. I said, yeah, sure, I can show you, clack, 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 and I did from 30 BPM to 990.99. And um, he says, oh, this is pretty cool. There's, you can't, by any chance, uh, combine this with Pro Tools. And the funny thing is, we kind of, in a, in a very um, smart move, from the very beginning, implemented a protocol called Rewire. And Rewire allows to do exactly that, that you can connect any piece of software to uh, Pro Tools and run it as a slave. So I just said, yeah, sure we can, it has Rewire. Ah, it has Rewire, nice. Um, And um, it was also, I believe, the first uh, music software that came out to run under OS X. So there were a lot of points for this person to be happy. And then this person left and I was very uh, occupied with explaining this this software to him, so I didn't really look at his name tag. Everyone has a name tag on the trade show, so I had my exhibitor tra- name tag, and this guy had his name tag with uh, um, visitor. And right before he left, I, I looked at his name tag, Hans Zimmer, and <clears throat> so I thought, oh, okay, well, the the the, the uh, uh. So half an hour later. Someone came by, said, hey, uh, I heard you have something interesting, Hans sent me. 35 minutes later, another person came by and said, "Hi, hey, hello, um, can you tell me what you're selling here, what is, what is the software? And so basically Hans Zimmer was really impressed, and if Hans Zimmer is impressed and is excited about something, he shares it with his other people. And the other people say, Hans uh, saw something exciting there at the very end, uh, this green little box there, you have to check it out. So suddenly all these people showed up uh, and we thought, hmm, maybe this thing we're doing here could also be interesting for people who are outside our primary focus. And um, that was one of the first points where we got an idea that perhaps we're doing something there that is a bit larger than what we anticipated. And then it, it grew like this over the years and our biggest surprise for the first Four or five releases was always that we were, every single time we went to the trade show, we thought, okay, now one of the big companies must have a product which is a perfect copy of that but better. Because we were a small company with maybe 10 developers at the beginning, and a company like Apple or Steinberg or, any of the, or Yamaha or whoever, any of the big companies could just say, okay, Department X, build a copy of that but better. And this would have been the end of Ableton, because, um, you know, with the marketing power and the the customer base of one of the big uh, hard or software players, they could just exceed what we have done by far. But they didn't, because they still didn't see that this is a market. And um, at the point when they really realized it, it was too late, because we we were so established that everyone wanted to use live. And so that's the story.
0: It's a great story. <laughs> so we're now at um, version 10 of live. Like to, what has your um, involvement been in the development of these different iterations of it? Um, Cause I know that you have stepped back uh, from direct involvement with Ableton. So like what, what has been your involvement through these various phases?
1: I'm kind of well. Let's let's start with my current involvement because that's easier to explain. Uh, I'm in a very luxurious position. Uh, officially, I have the um, the role of an external advisor, which means everything and nothing. Um, but practically, uh, I'm occupying myself with some details I find interesting or really important to focus on. Uh, some of the stuff which has to do with everything related to sound processing, sound uh, generation. I was involved in the wavetable synthesizer, I was involved with a few other uh, improvements of the effects. Um, this was always kind of my, my main domain, officially, um, but I basically look at every single aspect of the software and talk with people about what I think is a good thing to improve, what I believe is going in the wrong direction, and basically try to to put in my experience as someone who is using the software all the time, and who is talking with millions of people, exaggerating, uh, 20 people about this software, and observing how other people use it and where people fail, um, and try to get this This knowledge from the outside into the company and trying to, on a level of small details, try to uh, improve things. And the other thing is that I'm of course part of this group who really thinks about what do we do for the next release, what do we do for the next five years, Um, so I'm always kind of navigating myself from the tiny detail of implementation of parameter ranges of Colors of really anal detail because I'm one of those uh, to the great picture of saying um, we need to do more for people who want to do stuff that is not metrical music. I like to able to, I like life to be able to handle odd rhythms and polymetric, polyrhythmical stuff better than it does at the moment. Uh, is there anyone who is with me in this regard and can we allocate resources to that? Um, stuff like this.
0: As uh, live has grown in popularity and become like um, almost ubiquitous, I suppose, in certain parts of electronic music, how has it sat with you, this idea of the Abletonification (laughs) of electronic music, Um, the idea that it has... Well, okay, let me put it this way. It sounds like the initial um, impetus and the catalyst to develop these tools was to really revolutionise the idea of performance. Um, but I feel like Ableton, in certain quarters, has received criticism for restricting performance to a very standardised, I suppose, type of expression. Like, How does that sit with you?
1: Uh, well, um, it's of course true, uh, simply due to the fact that every instrument has a character. and it- it has to have a character, because there is no such thing as a neutral instrument. Um, And it makes a few things very easy to do, and it makes other things impossible or very hard to achieve. And it's in the very nature of people using instruments that the things which are easy and obvious are the things people do. Um, If you play a guitar, it's far easier to play uh, the chord progressions which are easy for your fingers, Um, than coming up with the most bizarre flamenco, um, whatever. Um, Sorry, I'm not a guitar player. Uh, But it doesn't keep anyone to move far, far away from what you do if you play guitar for a year. And I I think electronic music software and hardware uh, in general made it very, very easy to achieve the, the standard because it took away a lot of the pain uh, we had in the beginning. Uh, The the interesting question now is, if the computer makes all these things easy, what do we do as an artist? And the one solution is, let's make the same track everyone else made in five minutes, um, or I still spend four weeks or longer on a track and try to make something that is different, despite the fact that the basics are simple. And there's people doing it, and it's obvious. So uh, I, I think I never heard a, a serious composer I admire um, complaining about the simplicity of tools, because they are happy that basic things are simple, and then they find ways to express themselves. Uh, of course, it, it became much easier to to have two loops running and sync together. But everyone now knows that having two beat loops running in sync is easy, so if you listen to a, a piece of music that contains two beat loops running in sync, you're not freaking out about the fact that they're in sync, because you know that this is simple. Uh, we got used to it. So we're expecting something um, more engaging, more interesting. If you compare it with photography, a uh, long time ago, it was much harder to make photos that had fantastic colors, because it's a magical chemical process to make good color prints. Uh, nowadays, with um, state of the art uh, ccd sensor chips in a cheap uh, to, in a cheap camera, um, no one is amazed anymore by people having photos with nice colors just photos of nice colors. Uh, the internet is full of them um, but still keep, people can make really really interesting photos. You just need to find your own expression, and I see the same thing with life um, there 's no shortage of Using life in the most bizarre ways to create your own um, musicality. I mean, a funny thing is, in general, where I have personal problems with is when I, when I look at a synthesizer plugin and I play one note, and it plays back this whole complex series of things going on. Um, I feel lost as an artist, because you know, if I play a note and it's like, and there's a whole Richard Divine track coming out of one single note. Um, where does this leave me with my inspiration? So I'm rather happy if I play a note and it's a sine wave and I need to play 500 notes to make something complicated. Of course, uh, then you enter the realm of professional music production. A lot of the music which is made and a lot of the software which is sold and the hardware is sold to people who, well, make music for a living, like for commercials or whatever. And if you make a commercial uh, and the the, the director is sitting behind you and says, I want this You're not starting to say, okay, let me combine this sample of a pen falling down and let me put this in the key mark to time-stretch it, and... Oh, we're already at the next cue, sorry. Um, how about... That's great, we take it. Uh, this is the reality of music production for a lot of people, so... Um, there is a, a feedback between the products which are offered, and the demands of the market. So there is a market for creating instant amazing results, and this was the case when the first synthesizer came out with presets. Um, People didn't buy the DX7 because the synthesis algorithm was so amazing, and everyone wanted to dive deep into the magic of FM synthesis. They bought the DX7 because, hey, you turn it on, and here's my Rhodes, and here is my Flute, and here is my tubular bells. That's why they bought it. The fact that Probably, you could have sold uh, 95% of the DX7s without any capability of programming anything whatsoever, because people just used the thing which was right there. Um, It's only the few freaks who are trying to dive deep into their own expression.
0: Mm -hmm. Hi there, this is Christine Kakari. Thank you for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-travelling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on the podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discovering the podcast. Finally, there's a whole other world of great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's it for now. Thanks for listening.